One day I got a letter from Arkansas, and I opened it just because that's where Bill Clinton was from. I really liked right. him. And they were offering me the Sturgis Fellowship and a free trip to visit. And I thought, you know, I'd never probably go to school here, but you know, I've never been to Arkansas. I'd like to check it out. Right. You know? And so I took the trip and honestly just immediately fell in love with Fayetteville from the moment I got there. Welcome to the Arkansas Times Conversation Podcast. My name is Matt Price. Today we have a former Arkansas Times employee, Representative Warwick Saban. Warwick came to Arkansas to attend U of A Fayetteville, and then he attended Oxford. After that, he worked in multiple roles um, in politics, publishing, and economic development. The details I'm sure we'll get into later. Currently, Warwick is the Senior Director for U.S. Programs at Winrock International and State Representative for District 33. Warwick is currently exploring a run for Little Rock Mayor. For the purposes of full disclosure, I contributed to Warwick's exploratory campaign. This is the second interview of hopefully all mayoral candidates. The first one was Frank Scott Jr. Warwick, thanks for joining us today. You uh, bet. I wanted to start at the beginning to really have an understanding of how did you get to Arkansas? How did you end up here? Sure. Well, I, I get that question <laughs> more than you uh, might imagine. And I always try to tell the story as quickly as I can because it's sort of a long story. But the short of it is that between my junior and senior year of high school, I participated in the American Legion Boys State Program in New York. And I got selected to represent New York at Boys Nation. And some of you might remember that Bill Clinton famously got his picture taken with right. John F. Kennedy when he was a Boys Nation senator from Arkansas in 1963. And so they scheduled our ceremony with Bill Clinton for 30 years to the day that he met John F. Kennedy. So this was July of 1993, and obviously made a big impression on me. You know, first time I ever really was around a politician like that. Went back from my senior year of high school, and at the time, you know, I was really looking at going to an Ivy League school, mm -hmm. and um, I'd done well in my SAT, so I was getting a lot of mail from colleges around the country. <laughs> One day I got a letter from Arkansas, and I opened it just because that's where Bill Clinton was from, and I really liked right. him. And they were offering me the Sturgis Fellowship and a free trip to visit. And I thought, you know, I'd never probably go to school here, but I've never been to Arkansas. I'd like to check it out. Right. You know? And so I took the trip and honestly just immediately fell in love with Fayetteville from the moment I got there. Met amazing people, including Diane Blair. And mm -hmm. she and I really hit it off right away. She's a political science professor there. And uh, she said, if you come to school here, I'll be your advisor and you can work at the White House in the summers because she knew the Clintons very well. Right. Met Hoyt Purvis that weekend. Right. He became my thesis wow. advisor ultimately. But, you know, it was a tough decision at the time because, you know, I did get into Yale and it was kind of between Yale and Arkansas and everybody thought that I'd go to Yale. But I mean, in my gut, I just really wanted to go to Arkansas. It just seemed like a special, unique place. And I really connected with it. And the rest is history, I guess you could say. Sure. That's one of those decisions I'm sure you look back on. That was a very transformational decision because had you gone somewhere else your totally life could different. look completely different no question about yeah. it yeah so it's, it's always interesting to me to find out you know the kind of the pivotal points in people's lives that kind of led them on the path that they're on so that kind of leads into the next part and then what happened you went to Fayetteville and you went to Oxford mm -hmm. and then you got into politics and what kind of led you you mentioned Bill Clinton earlier yeah. I mean was that what took you into politics and why you started heading down that path? Well, really, you know, when I was a kid, I'd always wanted to be a journalist. I uh, loved to write, still love to write. And journalism has played a big role in my life, even during the course of my career. So when I arrived in Fayetteville for my freshman year, the first thing I did, I went straight to the offices of the Arkansas Traveler and signed up to write for them. And, and you know, that was an educational experience. And I remember, I think the first week 
I was on campus, I was assigned to uh, meet Governor Jim Guy Tucker when he was arriving at Drake Field to interview him. And, you know, I'd never met a governor before. And, you know, that was a neat experience. But over time, I just started to slowly get involved in politics, both on campus and otherwise. And I joined the Young Democrats, got involved in student government. Ultimately, I was president of the Young Democrats and then president of the student body at the University of Arkansas. And um, those were great experiences. And one of the things I'm most proud of in my life is I've led a campaign to have not just the University of Arkansas at Fayetteville, but the entire University of Arkansas system commemorate the Dr. Martin Luther King holiday. Because when I arrived on campus, I thought it was odd that the (laughs) campus didn't celebrate the holiday, number one. I thought also that there was a lot of positive things the campus could celebrate. Like, for instance, the fact that we were the first Southern University to admit an African-American student when we admitted Silas Hunt to the law school in 1948. Oh, right. yeah. So, you know, it didn't make any sense to me why we wouldn't participate in the federal holiday. And right. and ultimately, like I said, I was able to achieve that. Um, and there were a few other things that we did. We kept Razorback Transit free for everybody to use. <laughs> and I'll stop there, but there were a lot of initiatives. And that, that really gave me a sense of what you could do right. and accomplish through government. And then I did spend two years over in England. And, you know, actually, my second year, I was the speechwriter for the U.S. ambassador uh, at the U.S. embassy in London, which was neat. And then um, as soon as I finished, I ended up back in Washington working for Congressman Marion Barry Mm -hmm. as his press secretary. So, you know, maintaining the connection uh, with Arkansas from Washington for a couple of years until I moved to Little Rock in March of 2002 to be director of development for the Clinton Foundation when it was just getting started. Okay. I spent a couple years on the Hill as well, and it's always it's always interesting if you end up staying in D.C. and pursuing a career in, in D.C., kind of in that vein, versus the people that, that leave and go back. So I'm curious, why was it more of a an opportunity? You saw a, a great career opportunity at the Clinton Foundation, or you thought it, this would be, I just got to get the hell out of D.C.? Well, I mean, it, it was a little bit of both, and it wasn't so much I wanted to get the hell out of D.C., but... <laughs> You know, even then at age 25, I was pretty aware that, you know, that kind of city, it's fun to be there when you're single and to kind of participate in that political life that that exists there. But if you're going to sign up and be there permanently, you either need to be really, really lucky or you need to be willing to do politics as a business, in essence, you know, and and that means sometimes sacrificing your values and your principles. And that's not something I've ever been prepared to do. And so I kind of knew I wouldn't be there permanently. And obviously, you know, the opportunity to be part of the Clinton Foundation as it was just getting started, to build the presidential library, to get programs off the ground, all of that was extraordinarily exciting to me, especially at that age. Right. And, you know, in retrospect, too, it's funny because, you know, people, you know, sometimes ask me why I'm thinking about running for mayor instead of running for Congress. And I could tell them that I've been there. And, um, you know, I think being a member of the U.S. House of Representatives may be the worst job in politics because <laughs> right. you... Run every two years. All you do is raise money. You're right. flying back and forth every yeah. week. It's hard to get anything done in a dysfunctional atmosphere like that. And, you know, I, I'm in public service to, to make a difference and to get things done. And I just feel like um, I want to make sure my time is spent precisely on the things that I care the most about. Right, right. So kind of after your time at the Clinton Foundation, you got back into publishing, into the publishing world, mm-hmm. at the Arkansas Times, and then also later at the Oxford American can you kind of talk us through like why publishing? You mentioned your earlier days at the, the Arkansas Traveler in uh-huh. college, but why the Arkansas Times? Why Oxford American? Well, I mean, some of it is circumstantial. I mean, you know, for me, again, I've always been in, interested and involved in journalism, always loved to write. 
part of my attraction to public service is, you know, the opportunity to exchange ideas, to delve into policy. And again, you know, for me, you can't do that quite as well as a journalist because you can't actually make anything happen. All you can do is influence the people who do. But it's still, you know, it's an attractive thing for me. And so when Presidential Library was built, um, you know, in essence, it was a conversation with, with Max Brantley here at the Times to to become an associate editor, to have the chance to not just write a weekly column, but to, you know, write cover stories and just cover, you know, all of the different issues and, and, and news that was happening here in Arkansas. So, and then with the Oxford American, that was a magazine that I'd been reading since it first mm-hmm. started. And I just loved it. I was one of those loyal subscribers that kept my subscription going, even when they went out of business right. over and over and over again. <laughs> right. So, you know, the magazine moved to Little Rock about the same time I did, you know, that 2001, 2002. And where it was, it was in Mississippi. Was it in Oxford? That's right. It was started in Oxford, okay. Mississippi. Right. And John Grisham was the publisher. Yep. And John Grisham sold it to a couple guys here in Little Rock. Right. And so the fact that like my, one of my favorite magazines moved to the city, you know, that I had just moved to was really cool. And I got to know some of the people there and then... Inevitably, they went bankrupt again. So <laughs> I kind of helped them uh, right. actually turn the magazine into a nonprofit. And again, this was just when I was That's a volunteer, right. just just to help out. Uh, but then several years later, they were embezzled from and in debt again. Right. And so they said, you know, hey, could you help us kind of maybe try to fix the magazine in that way? And so as an unpaid volunteer, I became, in essence, the publisher. And that means, you know, you're running the business side of the magazine. And so I, you know, rolled up my sleeves to get into in essence, fixing the business. And over time, got it in good shape, quit my other job, became the full-time <laughs> publisher of the magazine, then, you know, was able to bring South on Main to fruition, which, you know, I don't know if your listeners right. are interested yep. in kind of the story behind that. But in essence, it was part of the business plan, you know, sure. to bring the magazine back to leverage all of the good stuff that the magazine does around events and programming, since the magazine is a nonprofit. Right. And so I'm really proud of uh, having created and conceive South on Main, and obviously it's thriving yeah. to this day. And that was South on Main, the restaurant, and then the Oxford American offices or the other part of the building. That was one of the first, or not the first, but the uh, first two or three developments in the South on Main district. Right? Was, we were there pretty early. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, you had, I think, you know, Boulevard may have been there by that point. I think the route. Right. Um, well, the main Green stay, Corner Store. Mainstay of Midtown was right there. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Should have yeah. gone first with Midtown. Of right. course, nobody gives Community <laughs> Bakery enough credit either that's for being true. there forever. So, um, but no, we, we got in kind of during the first part of the Renaissance, I guess you could say, down right. there. You know, I also participated in the first pop-up in the rock that ever happened in the city, which was, you know, right in front of our offices. And we did a basically a traffic calming project where we reduced Main Street from four lanes to three lanes, added bike lanes. And then, you know, that project literally led directly to the permanent restriping of the street that we all are familiar with now because oh, wow. Main wow. Street was a speedway. I mean, it was yeah, really it was. scary to cross the street in front of our offices. And and now that the traffic is slowed, I mean, not is it not only is it safer and, you know, people can bike there, but by slowing the traffic down, you really help the businesses there because people slow down and they see what's going on and they're interested and they may pull over, uh, which is just something that wasn't happening when people were going 60 miles an hour down the street. Right. And now you've got a large apartment development going in right across the street from there. It's, it's a, there's a lot of growth in that, in that neighborhood. And that's, it's fantastic to see. After you were at Oxford American, where did you transition out of there? So I left the OA to start the innovation hub, which, uh, you know, is physically located in North Little Rock, Mm -hmm. but you know, the impact was meant to be regional. Uh, the name of the organization was Arkansas regional innovation hub. And you know, the reason why I got really passionate about that, you know, by that time I was in the legislature 
And, you know, also I've been around the country and, you know, every city in the United States was advancing projects and creating resources to support entrepreneurship, to support art and design development, to support technological development and innovation and prototyping. And we didn't have any of those things here in central Arkansas, which just to me seemed like a real loss because we do have a great entrepreneurial spirit here and obviously so many talented people, but you need to do more to give people access to the tools, technology, information, resources they need to be successful. And so that's what the hub was. And the hub, in essence, was a way of bringing together several different things in one space. It's a 20,000 square foot building right across the street from Verizon Arena. Mm -hmm. But there's, you know, an entrepreneurial side that supports people who are really trying to get, you know, businesses started. And, you know, there's a lot of resources kind of that go with that. There's a maker space with all kinds of technology from, you know, really high tech 3D printers and CNC machines to a full wooden metal shop, as well as sort of a digital program. And then there's an art and design side, which again, you know, a lot of people underestimate or undervalue the importance of that. But, you know, design touches everything we do in our daily lives. Right. And, you know, right. the reason why you love your phone is because some smart right. designer made it so. And, right. and so bringing all of those resources together for both youth and adults was a very unique concept nationally. I mean, in essence, we were grabbing good ideas from everywhere, but, mm -hmm. but the combination of them, I think, is what has made the Innovation Hub so unique and interesting and effective. You're still, I think, doing your Innovation Hub work or something similar to it at Winrock, and Winrock is still involved in the Innovation Hub as well. Right. So the Innovation Hub became part of Winrock back in June of 16, and you know, that really happened when Winrock approached the hub because, you know, a lot of the programming that we were doing kind of fit not only with some of the domestic work that Winrock does, but actually it's international work. You know, there's a lot of similarities between supporting entrepreneurs in, for instance, you know, rural parts of the United States and supporting entrepreneurs in the rural parts of Asia and Africa and Latin America. And you know, so much of Winrock's work is spread out all around the world doing that kind of stuff. And so the Innovation Hub was a really interesting model. And, you know, Winrock had absorbed other organizations before, including the American Carbon Registry and the Wallace Center. Um, and the American Carbon Registry is our nation's leading sort of exchange for carbon credits. Right. And uh, the Wallace Center is sort of the leading um, kind of technical assistance provider for food hubs and local food systems. And so uh, so the Innovation Hub kind of fit really nicely into another sort of module that Winrock uh, can apply in a lot of different ways. And so it's been a good combination. And, you know, the Innovation Hub continues to do what it does, but it does it under the auspices of Winrock. Right. Why do you want to run for mayor? Why now, taking your experiences, why is this something that you want to do? Well, I mean, I'm really passionate about our city. I love Little Rock. And, you know, I've spent most of my adult life here and... You know, obviously, you know, I think all of us who live here appreciate the quality of life, the natural beauty, the, the great people who live here, the entrepreneurial spirit, the great businesses. But I think we all know that we could be doing better, that the city has a lot right. of potential and we're not quite achieving that. And, you know, if you travel around the country and you go to other cities around the nation, you'll see that, you know, there, a lot of them are pulling ahead of us. Mm -hmm. um, they're taking more risks. They're being more innovative. And my concern is that, you know, we're reaching a point where if we don't do something to change this dynamic relatively soon, we could be at a permanent competitive disadvantage because, in essence, cities are competing for talent. They are competing for the, the people and the businesses that are going to be part of the 21st century economy. And that means, you know, again, that we need to kind of get 
a hold of not just the challenges that we're facing, and I think the challenges, you know, fall in the buckets of public safety, of public schools, of jobs and infrastructure, but also the opportunities that we're missing because we haven't had a real vision articulated for what the city can be, for a plan to achieve, you know, again, that potential that we all know is there. And so for me, it's about Little Rock being the area of greatest need, but also being the area of greatest opportunity. And I've got three terms in the legislature behind me. I've got a record of accomplishment, not just there, but again, in the community, as we just discussed. Um, I like to make things happen. I like thinking outside the box. I don't mind taking risks. Most importantly, I want to be inclusive and I want to listen to a diverse group of people around the city and translate what people are saying into plans that everybody can get behind and then everyone knows where we're trying to go. Mm -hmm. Um, That's leadership and that's what the city needs right now. Right. So you touched on a lot of things there. One of the things I'd like to kind of back up and dissect a little bit more, talking about Little Rock's quality of life and then how that contributes to economic development. I think we're all very familiar with the Love Little Rock campaign that the city and the chamber put out, I guess it was in the last six months. What I think it was, it, it had very mixed reception. A lot of people loved it. A lot of people just kind of felt like this fell on deaf ears. I mean, this was felt, it felt tone deaf to me. I mean, I was really disappointed with it. And I do think it, it's emblematic of, you know, what's causing some of the other problems here in the city. I mean, in essence, you know, first of all, there, there was an inherent contradiction. Uh, the mayor initially said, you know, we were going after the Amazon offering in a tweet. Mm-hmm. And then several weeks later, you know, we were just given the opposite. And then, you know, the, that whole thing was supposedly conceived in nine days. Right. They bragged about the fact that it was kind of thrown together in nine days. <laughs> I could and, believe that. And grown yeah. together, thrown together by a small group of people right. who, in essence, all already know each other very well and tend to be the same people who are in the room whenever decisions are made. Right. So not very diverse, not very inclusive, not making any effort to tap into all of the talent that actually exists in the city mm-hmm. to get different perspectives. And, you know, my experience is the more diverse and different ideas you hear, the better solution you ultimately arrive at. It's, right. it's the concept behind crowdsourcing, you know, right. let's take advantage of everything we've already got here, but that's not what happened. So, like I said, it was sort of, you know, ill, ill-conceived, poorly executed. And then the message to me was awful. I mean, it basically yeah. said, we're good we don't need anything else here. We're just fine the way we are and we're happy being the way we are and we're not interested in anything else. And the problem is, is that, you know, even if you feel that way, you know, the Amazon offering, which by the way, Little Rock didn't qualify for, you know, by the criteria in the first place, but it certainly offered the opportunity to have a conversation about Mm -hmm. how could we position ourselves to compete for these kinds of things in the future? What kind of city do we want to be? Why don't we have some of the amenities that Amazon is asking for? Right. And by the way, you know, by not competing for this, we ultimately took ourselves out of the running for other things. Because one thing that we've learned subsequent to this competition happening is that all of the cities that applied, even if they didn't make that list of finalists, they're now in the running for distribution centers that Amazon may be putting all over the country. And Little Rock being, you know, in the middle of the country, mm-hmm. you know, where two interstates uh, converge, where we have river and rail and, and a great airport, you know, we'd be the perfect spot for something like that. Right. And I think, you know, again, being honest and transparent, being disciplined and very sort of focused on these kinds of efforts is, is what I think the people want to see. Not, again, the sort of reactive 
and ultimately disorganized kind of efforts that could ultimately, you know, really backfire and embarrass the city, which is, right. I think a lot of people are concerned that that campaign did. Right. Yeah. And it, it's to me, it's emblematic of a lot of the problems that the city has seen. And Ultimately, I just think it has to do with that thing that I brought up when you asked me why I want to run for mayor. And it's because I don't think that there's a sort of motivating principle and vision behind the leadership in the city. I don't think, you know, our leaders are waking up every morning knowing what they're trying to accomplish. We're not, we haven't articulated a vision for what we want to be. Therefore, no one here really knows where we're going. Right. There are no goals being set. There are no transparent plans being implemented to achieve those goals. And, you know, those are the basic fundamental kind of roles and responsibilities that come with being a leader. Mm -hmm. um, you shouldn't be waking up every day and then just expecting to react to whatever's happening. Right. And I think that everything in the city seems reactive. It seems complacent and therefore it seems stagnant. And I think everybody would love to get on board with a vision and participate in it, best of all. I mean, that's, again, that's the opportunity for us. It's not about me or anybody else who may be elected mayor doing everything. Mm -hmm. It's about marshalling all of the resources, all of the talent, all of the right. energy and the passion that we have in the city to bring it, you know, and direct it toward these goals that we all have participated in setting. Mm -hmm. So... I'm excited about what can be accomplished. I think that, you know, unfortunately, the bar is very low right now. You know, and we've had a mayor who's been in office for 12 years. You know, it's three terms. It's longer than anybody's ever served. It's time to give somebody else a chance and time to basically energize uh, and help the city again reach its potential. Right. Kind of backtracking to the three points you were bringing up around economic development and, and revitalizing the city. Education is obviously going to be a big part of that. Obviously, being in the state legislature, you have a good idea of what's going on at the Board of Education level. Could you talk to me a little bit about that, about what you see as the time frame in which Little Rock might get its, uh, its uh, school board back? Well, you know as much as I do. Um, you know, we need to have an elected school board back as soon as possible. I was against taking over the district in the first place. I think it was done under sort of questionable, uh, justifiable circumstances in the first place. And so, you know, it looks like it may happen this year. You know, all indications from the commissioner that, you know, they're looking at maybe doing it in order to have school board elections in November. But, you know, as of right now, you know, there's been no announcement made. But, you know, I want to talk about the fact that in Little Rock, our elected political leadership has not engaged with this issue. And I think that's a dereliction of duty. Right. And that's something I've been talking about a lot. I think that you know, I don't know a great city in America where the political leadership isn't fully invested in making sure that you can deliver a quality public education to everybody who lives in your city. When I talk about goal setting, you know, our goal should be no matter where you live in Little Rock, you know you can send your kid to a great public school because that's one of the biggest challenges we're facing right now. People don't want to live in Little Rock uh, or they don't want to send their kids to the public schools, you know, because of this issue. They don't want to locate a business here because of that issue. And you know, we're doing a disservice to our children and our future. We're reducing their, you know, opportunities when we aren't, you know, committed to this goal. And so as mayor, I want to be shoulder to shoulder with the superintendent, with the school district. I want to lead a conversation about how we create excellent schools and, right. you know, creating the environment for teachers to thrive and creating a citywide plan to achieve that. And I always tell people, if you think that sounds 
too good to be true. Um, look across the river, because this is something North Little Rock just did over the last few years. They convened a conversation. They solicited input. They created a plan. They passed it. They implemented it. And now they have brand new schools throughout their district. And that's just something that hasn't happened in Little Rock, but there's no reason why it can't. It just takes better leadership. Right. So that that's really interesting. Why is North Little Rock able, able to convene those types of resources and that sort of community buy-in to create a plan like that? Why, why not Little Rock? Why is that I, ju- I just think it's a question of leadership. I mean, I, I, sometimes, you know, these things aren't quantifiable. Mm-hmm. They're perfectly qualitative. And, and it all has to do with process, too. I mean, you know, when you look at Little Rock, I mean, we're constantly stepping on our own feet when we're trying to do things. I mean, if you remember how the tech park issue went down, I mean, you know, they scared everybody in the neighborhood. They were initially going to put the tech park in because they didn't go into the neighborhood and talk to anybody about it. They just right. basically said, this is where it's going to go. And then by scaring everybody and creating, you know, all of the opposition that they did, they stretched out the process over several years, which cost more money. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we could have a long conversation just about that one issue. But, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you know, our leadership doesn't take the time or make the effort to do the first things first. And that is engaging with people, meeting them where they are, listening to them, processing that information and turning it into, you know, plans, proposals and goals that everybody can support. And that's how you tie a community together is you let people participate. And by the way, you know, people may not initially agree and they may not ever agree but if people respect the process right that goes a long way too yeah and again north little rock did the process well a lot of other places do the process well we don't we have a few people who get in that back room and decide how they think things should be and then they drop it on everybody's head <laughs> and they expect everybody to go along with it and this just keeps repeating itself over and over and over again right right and it's yeah just getting back to the process piece of it you know showing people that they have a voice that their voices are heard and whether or not their specific issue gets enacted, but that the process works and that people are being heard and then they can turn that information into actionable insights. Like we can actually go and do something with this type of feedback. Yeah. Process is, is something that is sorely, sorely needed. And one other issue I want to hit on is crime and just the issue of crime in Little Rock. We know at a national level, Crime has been coming down for uh, several years, the last 10, 10 or so years. Uh, we've seen a recent uptick, especially around property crimes. What, in a Saban administration, what sort of things would you do to take action to try to try to curb that uptick? Sure. And by the way, it's not just property crimes. If you look at the statistics, and property crimes, by the way, have gone up quite a bit. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the statistics, 2017 was the worst year for violent crime than we've seen in a very, very, very long time. And by that, I mean murder, I mean rape, I mean assault and battery. In Little Rock specifically. In Little Rock specifically. I mean, really, really, really bad. And, you know, I think, let let me just take it in two two bites. The first bite is on the enforcement side. I think that's the place where we can have the most immediate impact. And I've been talking for a long time about, you know, the, the lack of effort to fill the vacant police officer positions in Little Rock. And this goes back before I was formed my exploratory committee. And I was always dismissed out of hand anytime that issue came up. But, you know, when you are talking to the police and they're telling you they're stretched thin and can't cover all the ground, when you're talking to people in all parts of the city, whether north of 630 or south of 630, and they're complaining that, you know, their 911 calls aren't being responded to, then you know there's an issue of manpower. And that's, you know, a first principle for a city. I mean, we organize ourselves into governmental entities 
first and foremost, to protect ourselves and find safety in numbers. And we have to guarantee public safety in our city. So, you know, for me, it's about being aggressive about filling these police officer positions. The city didn't really start moving on it till after I formed my exploratory committee last July. And, you know, they've, they've done a little bit of marketing. They've done a little bit more recruitment. But we've got 150 more vacancies coming over the next five years with retirements. And this is something we need to address. And we also need to do a, a larger sort of analysis of what our force strength should be. Maybe, you know, the current police force isn't even big enough and maybe we need more officers. And I think that's important. We need to return to community policing as well. This is a strategy that's worked so well in Little Rock in the past, worked great in my neighborhood. I've lived in Capitol View for 14 years and we knew our COP officer and, Mm -hmm. you know, he was trusted. People liked him. It helps you get information more quickly so you can prevent crime, but it also helps you respond more quickly to enforce the law. And then, you know, the city removed those uh, COP officers all over the city. And I think that's had a detrimental effect. We need to work with the state to reduce the caseloads on the parole officers because our parole officers in central Arkansas have some of the highest caseloads in the United States. And that's just unacceptable. And it's obviously, you know, a management issue as far as just being able to keep up with this stuff. But then, you know, also there's the opportunity uh, to just have a more coordinated approach where, you know, we're not just isolating the police when it comes to crime, but you know, are we working with code enforcement? Are we working with youth services? Can we, you know, have a mayor who's convening these conversations, looking at the data and being able to sort of aggressively respond, again, not just to the criminal activity, but to the vacant house where the criminal activity is taking place, to the lack of lighting or surveillance, to the lack of youth programming in a place where maybe we're seeing some crime spikes. I mean, these are all the kinds of things that, you know, are a little bit more sophisticated, but yet not out of the realm of ability for a good leader to kind of take on. And, and I think coordinating across departments is really important. But, you know, systemically, uh, you know, we need to obviously give our youth more opportunity, whether it's through youth programs, whether it's through, you know, workforce education, you know, whether it's through improving the public schools. There's just so much more we could be doing on this issue. And people need to know that what those things are and how they're being implemented in a very transparent way. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So I want to touch on one last big issue, and that's the the recent news of the lawsuit. Sure. The city of Little Rock has sued your campaign, you personally, Frank Scott's campaign, and and him personally as well, citing that you're in violation of a city ordinance about raising raising campaign funds before a certain time period. I'd love to to get your, your overall thoughts on that. I wouldn't have formed an exploratory committee if I thought it, it in any way violated the law, and clearly it doesn't. And I think the courts will end up confirming this sooner rather than later. In essence, you know, the city has this ordinance that says you can't form a campaign until the June before the election. So in essence, it gives you five months to raise money and have a campaign. That clearly advantages incumbents. Right. And, and the reason why is because, you know, if you're a challenger, you're going against, you know, an incumbent already has name recognition who on June 1st can call in tons of contributions from people. You're just, you know, starting way, way behind. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, you know, the, if you look at the history, uh, hardly anybody ever has successfully challenged an incumbent city director or mayor right. in Little Rock. And this is the reason why, because it's just really hard to do. So usually our city directors or mayors stay in office as long as they want to. And then, you know, when it's an open seat is the only time we get change. I wanted to disrupt that system because I didn't think it was fair, especially if I was going to be challenging a three-term incumbent. And, you know, state law allows for the formation of an exploratory committee. By definition, an exploratory committee is before you form a real campaign, mm-hmm. allows you to raise money and, and do, you know, a lot of other activities. And so 
again, the Ethics Commission has already said it's perfectly fine. I mean, the law is very clear about, you know, the opportunity to have this exploratory committee before I form a campaign in June. So I'm abiding by the city ordinance. I'm abiding by state statute. Mm -hmm. And um, quite frankly, not only am I not worried about the outcome of the lawsuit, but I'm really glad the city sued because I think it underscores the reason why I'm running. I mean, the city is tone deaf. It's out of touch. It makes bad decisions. It spends taxpayer money the wrong way. And all of that is illustrated in this one uh, instance. And so I'm looking forward to the verdict. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I expect to just continue doing what I'm doing until June and then start the campaign. Right. We've obviously covered a lot of ground in the last uh, half hour. One of the things that is always interesting to me, uh, kind of from a personal uh, perspective, over your career, what do you think, what has been the biggest challenge that you've taken on and then the how you took that challenge and, and overcame it? Well, I mean, I feel like everything I've done to some degree has been a big challenge. I mean, I, I feel like you know I've never done anything the easy way or even the conventional way. I mean, the first thing that came to mind when you asked that question was sort of taking over the Oxford American because you know, I didn't think twice about doing it, even though you know here's a magazine that had been bankrupt several times. Nobody had ever really gotten it right. Mm-hmm. It was $100,000 in debt. Um, because it had been embezzled from, and nobody really gave it a chance. And, you know, and again, I took it on, you know, in an unpaid volunteer capacity. But, you know, I was really able to sort of build the business back up through its fundamentals, but also be really creative in coming up with, you know, how we would make it sustainable over the long term. And, you know, that really had to do with, again, creating, sort of leveraging the brand. You know, the Oxford American was, you know, obviously very much loved, well-respected, associated with the best of Southern culture. And, you know, in essence, you know, I was able to, you know, create events and programs that kind of built off of that, that created revenue. And it was that sort of of strategy that led to creating South on Main, because in, in essence, I thought, well, these programs we're doing all over the country are so successful. What if we could do those every day and do them in Little Rock? And by the way, no magazine in the country had ever had its own venue. And I, I think to this day, Oxford American for sure is the first and may still be the only magazine in the country wow. that has its own venue. But the idea was, what if you could have a place where people could go every day and enjoy great Southern food, which was something that, you know, we cover in the magazine and, mm-hmm. and hear writers and musicians and artists and see art and do all of that kind of in this, in this unique venue associated with the magazine. And I was able to win a grant, you know, mm-hmm. to do the renovation of the old Juanita's building. And then obviously, you know, perpetuate the programming and and all of that. So to me, that was about taking something that, again, was really difficult, that had never kind of been gotten right before. Mm -hmm. And again, being both disciplined, but also creative. And in some ways, you know, very risk-taking and sort of thinking about a different way that a magazine could be successful in the 21st century as publishing evolved and as nonprofits were being heard. And by the way, this was all while the economy was bad. I mean, I, right. I literally took over the magazine in 2008. <laughs> so the economy tanked and, you know. It's a great year for advertising in magazines. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you know, I'm really obviously proud of that. Yeah. And, and again, I think it shows, you know, that just in, in, you know, all of these different instances, you know, creating the innovation hub from scratch mm-hmm. um, when nobody really even understood what I was trying to do here mm-hmm. to begin with. You know, I, I'm really proud of kind of looking around the city, looking around our region, and seeing the things that I've created and knowing that all of that will help me be a better mayor to take our city where I know it can go. Was there ever a point where you thought you would fail? 
Of course, all the time. And, you know, I think that, look, I mean, I can fail running for mayor. Okay. I mean, all of this stuff is is risky. Um, but, you know, you only live once, and I, I think it's worth giving it a shot. You know, as while we're talking about risk, you know, you haven't asked me about the 30 crossing project. Oh, that's true. And um, I, that's a big yeah. issue for our city. And I also right. think it's going to be a big issue in this race because I have a much different position on it than uh, either of the two people that currently look like will be my opponent. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I first looked at this project back in 2015, I attended all of the meetings that they had, you know, to kind of analyze the information that was being presented. And then in October of 2015, I wrote an op-ed for the Democrat Gazette laying out the reasons why I thought expanding an interstate right in the middle of our downtown was a bad idea. And when I did that, you know, people thought I was a little nutty. I mean, I was the first public official to really come out with a position on this issue. Right. Um, and, you know, obviously it didn't agree with everything that some of our business leaders and the Highway Commission wanted to do, which I was told is unusual for, right. for somebody to stake out a position there. But I think that's the kind of leadership we need in the city because I'm not being antagonistic just for the sake of being contrarian. And I'm not even saying we don't need to do uh, improvements to our infrastructure. I mean, clearly, if that bridge is structurally deficient, it needs to be replaced. Um, but there may be better ideas for how we can deal with the vehicular traffic because we're making a 50-year infrastructure decision. Almost every other city in the nation is taking its interstates out of its downtown. Mm -hmm. We already have experience in Little Rock with interstates dividing our community, you know, when we did 630. Why would we expand an interstate right in between two parts of our city that are actually seeing the most revitalization, the river market in the East Village, doing that in, at a time when millennials and the kind of talent we're trying to attract to our city don't even want to own cars and want to be in a livable, walkable downtown as transportation evolves. And we're probably going to see driverless cars and trucks and, <laughs> you know, ride sharing and everything else mm -hmm. that's going to change the way, you know, just in essence, interstates work. Right. Every kind of logical factor would suggest that spending, you know, almost a billion dollars to expand an interstate in the middle of our downtown core will hurt Little Rock and will also be a bad long-term decision for the city. Right. And that's all I'm saying. And as mayor, I want to be able to have these conversations in a way where people can consider these ideas and be thoughtful, but then also be decisive about maybe saying, you know, let's do this a different way mm -hmm. and let's be forward thinking and let's be part of the 21st century economy and not continue to do the same things that have been happening from decade upon decade. Right. It sounds like you're even advocating for evidence-based uh, reasoning, evidence-based uh, policymaking. Yeah, but, especially, know. I mean, I'm, and I know you're kind of being facetious right. a little bit there, but I mean, it's true. I mean, especially when the ultimate result of this may be shaving a few seconds off someone's commute. Right. And I don't believe in, you know, building an interstate for its maximum capacity for, you know, a half hour in one direction in the morning and a half hour in the other direction in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. That is not a smart use of limited taxpayer dollars. Mm -hmm. um, there are just so many, again, better ways that we can use our money that are more necessary and that, again, benefit the people of Little Rock. And, right. and you know, we're trying to create a community here. We're trying to tie people together. We're trying to give people options. Uh, mobility is a big part of that. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think that, you know, we need to, again, have leadership that anticipates the future instead of just being stuck in the past. Right. Well, that's a great place to end it. Warwick, thanks so much for joining us. This has been our second of hopefully all three interviews with our uh, mayoral candidates for the city of Little Rock. Uh, thanks for listening to the conversation. 
The podcast you just heard was recorded with Anchor. If you want to make your own, download the Android or iOS app completely free from anchor.fm slash podcast. That's anchor.fm slash podcast.